Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to send shockwaves through the nation's economy. With so much volatility and uncertainty, it's difficult to determine just how much damage the economy has suffered and how long it will take to recover. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, we're joined by University of Minnesota Professor of Economics Timothy Kehoe, Professor Kehoe is also an advisor to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. His opinions do not necessarily reflect those of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank or the Federal Reserve System. Professor Kehoe, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Happy to be here. In the U.S., we're about four months into feeling the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy. How is the economic picture looking today? Well... Jim, I have been looking at forecasts, predictions, and so forth for the last couple of days. And I think I can safely tell you that uh, we economists really don't know. Now, how's that for an honest answer? <laughs> it's there's an honest answer. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. Let me just give you a few facts and try to put it in a bit of perspective. And then we can talk about what could be happening in the future. So we've just recently got the final numbers or what's close to the final numbers uh, for the first quarter. Although the pandemic was beginning to have some impact in January, February on the world economy, it didn't really begin to have any impact on the United States economy until March. But it had such a bad impact in March that U.S. GDP was falling at an annual rate. And I'm going to get back to this annual rate because it's going to help us think about some of the shocking numbers I'm going to tell you afterwards. But it fell at an annual rate of 5%. I mean, what does that mean, Jim? Is that it fell by a little bit more than 1%, the contribution to the year of 1%, It fell within the quarter by 5%. And if that kept up, we would have lost 5% of GDP on the year. Now, that's not keeping up. And so let's get to that. But that idea of losing about 5% of national income output in the first quarter, January, February, March, and it was all March, was 5%, which was a truly horrible number historically. It's very seldom such a bad number, and that's always associated with recessions, because if it does that in one quarter, it'll do it in the next quarter. That means something's wrong. Now, we do not have numbers on the second quarter. See, economists in uh, in Bureau of Economic uh, Activity in the U.S. government who uh, calculate these uh, GDP figures, the most used summary of the value of output or total value of incomes in the country, they start trying to put together numbers even before they have all the data together to do estimates. And that process goes on for two months before they have really good estimates. That's why only now do we have good estimates of the first quarter. But on July 30th, we're gonna start to get some kind of idea of what the drop of GDP was in April, May, and June. And the numbers are all over the place. 
the Atlanta Fed tries to do very preliminary forecasts. And they're saying that it dropped that annual rate of 53% per year. If that would keep up, Jim, there would never have been a year that bad during the whole uh, uh, Great Depression in the 1930s. Now, I don't expect it to keep up. And so that's what we got to talk about. But what's happening is things shut down and we basically lost half of output, half of incomes for this second quarter. I'm giving you the best numbers that there are out there. We're in uncharted territory. So I can't uh, swear by these preliminary estimates because we haven't had things like this to deal with. Now, what people are hoping for is that if you lose that much, then you're going to bounce back very quickly. Now, what's for sure If you're that far down, you're going to have impressive growth numbers in the uh, third quarter. But actually, there's a lot of debate about that going on. And I I saw a report that some economists at Goldman Sachs were putting together. And they think that we can uh, jump back by about 25% in the third quarter. But Jim, this is something where when you're talking small changes... The phenomenon I'm going to give you right now, all you need to do is have a bit of a a high school algebra to see this. 25% of a GDP that's half of what it was ahead of time is only one-eighth of what it was ahead of time. So when you're very low, when you're very, very low, 25% really means we'll get back one quarter of what we lost in the second quarter and the third quarter. Now, that number, the Goldman Sachs number, is down from what they were hoping for, which was about a third. But there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And so now let's get talking about what's going on in the economy. I just wanted to point out, Jim, that we are in unprecedented bad times. We'll see how long this lasts. The problem of the... Great Depression um, was not just that it had horrible years like 1933 in it, but it also like we started a kind of slow recovery from that really low point between, you you know, the economy falling apart between 1929 and 1933. My gosh, if I was talking about this a few years ago, some of the older people in the audience might even uh, remember that from when they were children, but you know, the greatest generation are in the process of leaving us. So this sounds just like history, but a lot of people like me will remember their grandparents or somebody talking about those times. The 1930s were rough. This year is gonna be really bad, Jim. Even though the third and fourth quarter might have some kind of uh, recovery, It'd have to be spectacular, and it's not going to be, to get anywhere near making up for what we've lost. The question will be, how soon are we going to be back to where we were before? And the bad news on that is uh, we don't have much control. COVID-19, coronavirus, 
that's what kind of has control and we're kind of losing it. So we're at a new spike. It's not just the number of infections that, of course, everyone's talking about, which we all know are spiking, but they say, oh, but the deaths aren't that high. No, take a look at the recent figures. We've suffered economically in uh, this country from being half shut down. But because we were half shut down and not fully shut down, we didn't beat the, the COVID-19 and uh, the coronavirus. And so I can't see us fully opening up uh, anytime soon. In Minneapolis, as you know, places can open, restaurants and so forth. Now, they especially encourage you to do things outside. You're an old Minnesotan, uh, Jim. You know that's not going to go too far into the fall. Being inside a restaurant or a bar with your friends actually turns out to be the worst possible place you can be, according to the scientists, for contracting coronavirus. And this is one of the reasons the Governor Abbott of Texas has admitted that was the big mistake he made was opening bars too soon. Now, Jim, I was 25 years old, young and single, and I like to hang out with my friends in bars. And I can understand somebody in that situation now who's been cooped up in their little apartment uh, and now can get out with their friends wants to do it. So it's not like I'm not sympathetic to that. It's just that what that's going to mean is that's going to keep economic activity down. It's going to be when we have some kind of effective treatment or even better, an effective vaccine uh, before we can uh, get back to normal. Well, Dr. Fauci thinks it could be maybe in December, January, and I sure hope he's right. But, you know, I've heard other professionals and you've probably heard Mike Osterholm from the University of Minnesota talk about this, and he doesn't think it's going to be that soon. One thing we do know from research, there was just a huge research effort in, in Spain. You know, Spain was the uh, worst hit country in terms of death per capita in the world. Now, look, in uh, countries like Brazil and Mexico, the numbers could be worse, but we won't know because both countries, unfortunately, have irresponsible governments who had presidents who were committed not to acknowledging the seriousness of the pandemic. And then they're also much poorer. And uh, you get a lot of people dying and they never see a doctor in the process of dying. So just to say that Spain has the highest per capita uh, deaths in the world just means according to the statistics that we have. And they're really not maybe comparable with countries like Brazil or Mexico. Now, what they've done, they've done massive testing uh, to see how many people have the antibodies. And they find that only 5% of the people, when I say massive testing, I, the, I think the number was they did a national sample of 61,000 people, randomly chosen. And... Um, they only find 5% of people have the antibodies, whereas from the information they have, they think a much higher number had actually been sick. Is this that kind of uh, disease? And, and you might remember when you were a kid, Jim, when 
parents would even, if somebody in the neighborhood had the measles, they'd bring other kids over to catch the measles when they were young. So instead of getting one when they were teenagers, when it would be more dangerous, because the measles is a disease where if you have it once, only a very small percentage of people will ever get it again. You're effectively immunized by the first occurrence of the disease. And we were hoping that COVID-19 was like that. It doesn't seem to be like that. And Jim, you and I have talked a lot, and I always try to be careful about this. I am an expert on economics. Uh, I'm just reporting to you what I'm reading, but then I'm going to interpret that in terms of economics. I am not a public health uh, expert or a medical expert. But if these results from Spain, and I haven't read the scientific report, I've seen it in the newspaper. If this holds up, uh, that's bad news. This is not going to go away until we have an effective treatment or, uh, or vaccine. We're talking with University of Minnesota Professor of Economics Timothy Kehoe about the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Kehoe is also an advisor to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. His opinions do not necessarily reflect those of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank or the Federal Reserve System. Let's take a look at the pandemic's impact on some specific businesses and industries, starting with retail. Multiple U.S. retailers have filed for bankruptcy in recent weeks, but many of them were struggling prior to the pandemic. Has the pandemic essentially just accelerated the demise of some businesses that were in trouble prior to it? Very much so. Uh, what's interesting is that to uh, me and to you as Minnesotans is that, of course, the pandemic has really stimulated activity for uh, Amazon, but it's also stimulated activity for Target. Target is in the process of consolidating and closing some of those you know, brick-and-mortar outlets but Target is really doing a good job on deliveries, on pickups outside the store. You know, you order ahead of time. You don't even go in the store. You just call when you're getting there and you get your groceries. But it's going to mean consolidation in that sector. Certainly, stores that depend on walk-in traffic. It's going to be a while and we say, oh, but you got to open you know, it's like opening a bar or a restaurant. If you can only have a quarter or a third capacity in the restaurant, they couldn't have survived in the old days based on that kind of stuff, right? So I think uh, retail establishments that uh, depend on uh, uh, walk-in customers, I don't see the, uh, the outlook being that good. Now, one thing that's good, of course, Jim, is we're learning a lot. And you know that just the way we're doing this interview, but uh, we as an economy, we're going to think of more ways of doing things like this, and it's going to be more efficient in some ways to do uh, video conferences rather than to have everybody get on a plane, fly somewhere. It's going to make a lot of sense to do business meetings like this. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Suppose I was in commercial real estate. 
I've already given my preamble that we really don't know what's going on, but I'm going to give you my guess. But now, now we're not talking about me reading medical reports. Uh, uh, I'm an economist. This is the kind of thing I do. My guess, Jim, is that commercial real estate's in trouble. Why in downtown Minneapolis uh, is commercial real estate uh, expensive? I mean, some of it, of course, is the retailers, and there's a lot of retailers there. Uh, but that's not even the big push anymore because that's been fading over the last 20 uh, uh, years or so. It's uh, office space because everybody thinks if you have a big firm, everybody has to get together in the same office. And I think we're finding out you don't. That might actually end in the long run. That can make our economy more productive. The problem is we've had all kinds of people invest in uh, commercial real estate, all kinds of people depend on the returns to that. And I think that's a sector that's going to really be hurt. And that goes along with what you were saying about retail, but it's getting even bigger. Hey, Malls that do all kinds of things for our society besides just having retail. Uh, you know, they have bars and restaurants and teenagers go there to hang out. But I see malls on a downward track, too. And they were in trouble uh, prior to the pandemic as well. To pick up on uh, the way you originally phrased your question, what this is doing is really speeding up some of those processes. Uh, what they call brick-and-mortar retail establishments, big offices. We're going to do with less of them in the future. I was going to say also, especially in an area like Minneapolis, we have a lot of good restaurants. And uh, I hope that the better ones survive one way or the other. Because once the coronavirus is beaten, we're going to go back to doing something like that. But, you know... The reason you try to keep firms together, and as this thing stretches on, it's going to be tougher and tougher, is, yeah, the restaurant is the address on the street, and it's the dining room furniture, the tables, the chairs, so forth, and the kitchen equipment. But it's more the collection of what make a good restaurant are the people who work there, the cooks, the serving people, the people who run the dining room. And uh, if that gets broken up, it takes a long time to get a really good group back together again. And what's happening, if, if you follow the jobs numbers, uh, Jim, you see that, you know, employment's picking back up. But the number of people who are having their status go from being uh, temporarily unemployed to being unemployed with no uh, big prospect of getting the original job back is going up. And that means these kind of teams are being broken up. And that's going to make it tougher for us to get back when we do start. And we're not even started yet. We're still in the downturn. We're talking with University of Minnesota professor of economics, Timothy Kehoe, about the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Kehoe is also an advisor to the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. His opinions do not necessarily reflect those of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank, or the Federal Reserve System. When the entrepreneur and political novice Andrew Yang entered the Democratic presidential primary race, his idea of a universal income 
earned him enough attention to make it onto the debate stage, but the concept still seemed pretty fringe for many voters. Now, with so many people seeking unemployment benefits, combined with the fact that most Americans' health insurance is tied to their employer, do you think those ideas like universal income and universal health care will become more mainstream? I hope so. Universal income is perhaps a little bit more uh, controversial and complicated, but uh, we should remember one of the very major conservative economic thinkers 50 years ago, uh, Milton Friedman, was in favor of that. Milton Friedman thought about what he called the negative income tax, that if your uh, income is high enough, you get taxed, and if your income is low enough, no, you get a transfer from the government. And he thought that putting money in poor people's hands was the best way to incentivize them to do things rather than to have a complex uh, set of um, social transfer mechanisms. Now, I am not saying that just because Milton Friedman thought that, that everybody, even conservatives, should accept it. But a lot of economists think that we need to find efficient ways to give uh, people who are temporarily or even permanently in bad shape, help them out. And the society as a whole will be better off because of it. Tying healthcare, in fact, I'm, I'm starting to work with some of my colleagues on a project uh, with that. Tying healthcare to job status and then going through a crisis like this uh, just ends up looking crazy. So you have to think of low probability events. When we're in situations with the normal business cycle fluctuations in income and employment, Yeah, it doesn't look so bad. Although during the so-called Great Recession, that uh, 2008, 2009 recession, when unemployment rates uh, really jumped up from uh, 4% to 10%, we already have evidence of people who, through no fault of their own, lost their jobs and then lost their health care, and then that could have uh, permanent consequences for them that so-called Great Recession was nowhere near as bad as the recession we're in now. You know, early on, Congress implemented uh, programs to lend money to uh, businesses that just furloughed uh, workers but kept them on the payrolls and provided health insurance for them, and then they tried to provide uh, money to the workers. These were stopgap measures that seemed like good ideas at the time when we thought maybe the economy would be getting going again right about now. And, you know, in some of the European countries where they did a much better job of doing the initial shutdown, the economies are going again. Here we're not. I mean, we can try. It's not going to work. It's not going to work in Arizona. It's not going to work in Texas. It's not working in Florida. We have massive spread of the, of the coronavirus. People are not going to want to, uh, I mean, some will, but a lot of people are not going to want to engage in economic activity if they're frightened that they're going to get uh, this disease that can have, for some people, can be fatal. But, you know, there's more and more information coming out for even for younger people. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine in Spain who's very young and healthy, 
and uh, had coronavirus. And now he's finding that his recovery uh, is not going that well. And it seems that he's going to have some problems with his heart and lungs for the long term. And that happens to 25-year-old kids. And that's going to that's be costly. And then, and then the more the extent to which consumers and workers, they're the same people, it's just two sides of the same coin. But when you think about going out to dinner, um, you're going to think, woof, do I want to risk that? We've done a good job cooking at home. Maybe I just stay at home. But then that means the restaurant can't recover. And Jim, as you know, I'm a fanatic about going out to good restaurants. I'm not in the mood for eating in an enclosed restaurant, you, you, you know, with limited airflow uh, until we have a vaccine or uh, effective treatment. Americans' personal savings rate soared to an historic high of more than 32% in April, as many opportunities to spend money simply went away in the wake of stay-at-home orders and business shutdowns. The savings rate dipped to a little over 23% in May, but that's still quite high by historic standards. Is this new frugality, some of which, of course, is forced, a good thing, or should we be worried that consumers may be less willing to spend as the economy reopens? That's the perfect question. And if these savings rates would keep up in the long term, and there's only one country in the world that has the high uh, savings rate that uh, uh, over time is China. And partly that's because the uh, healthcare system and uh, pension system in China is so bad, people have to just save to their old age. But um, that's at least one of the reasons that economists who study this tell us. No, but it's quite natural. It's quite natural that in the short run, when you're hit by this pandemic and you have to put the economy in this kind of medically induced economic coma, that we do that for a while, we save. And when we got the coronavirus whipped, we come out and spend. And I think that we Americans will do that. But, you know, one thing I'm often doing uh, this time of year for a couple of weeks, I'm going on vacation. And I'm spending money, but I'm not going to do that this year. But my plan is to do it even more next summer. You see what I'm saying? So as a temporary measure, it just makes sense. I have faith in American consumers want to spend. So uh, once we have opportunities to do that safely, I bet we're right back up there. Timothy Kehoe is a professor of economics at the University of Minnesota. He is also an advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. His opinions do not necessarily reflect the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis or the Federal Reserve System. Professor Kehoe, wonderful to have you again on Dialogue Minnesota. Well, Jim, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, even if it was uh, just virtually. <laughs>